This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. This one's probably going to be a little bit quicker than some of our other ones. Uh, we realized we'd done when to, you know, hit run away and say you've burnt your load and this card's bad, get rid of it. So today we're actually going to cover on specs what we do when we double down. Yeah. When we decide, you know what, I want to be an idiot even more and light another $100 on fire for Sarkin's Unsealing, uh, because I think that's a good idea. So basically, what makes us think it's a good idea? What time it is yep. in our heads when we're like, you know what, let's go deeper. Let's go deep, yeah. Uh so when I was thinking about this, uh, we mentioned before the cast, I started to fall into this little bit of a trap of like, well, this is how I spec, and I had to keep like pulling myself out of this hole. And eventually, I kind of boiled it down to like two things, and I'll, I'll talk about uh, one, and we'll you know go back and forth. The first one is kind of the easiest one for me. Uh, it's basically about uh, personal quantity and uh, and open market retail price, and these are two data points that I kind of wrap together. And every spec that I make, um, for the most part, is kind of subject to this. And I'll use Sunbird's Invocation as an example here. So when I started buying into Sunbird's Invocation, my goal was a maximum quantity between 100 and 200 copies or uh, a solid retail price of over a dollar because I started buying in when they were between 25 and 50 cents. I think the average buy-in was somewhere around 34. So I... I I re-upped actually a number of times on this spec because various market spaces just weren't keeping up. They just kept dropping more and more and more. So I kept re-upping from market spaces until they essentially ran dry and eventually TCG hit a dollar. Now I did end up, I had to check um, a couple of my buy list uh, orders with almost exactly 100 copies and I have about half of them left. And the goal that I had for these was to sit on them and flip once it was clear that demand was outpacing supply and sustainable, meaning that uh, the numbers wouldn't crash when quantity was released back into the marketplace. My uh, original idea was to go to buy a list. You know, I'm not the gaming co. I'm not going to list 100 copies of Sunbird's Invocation at TCG low and crash the market that way. I like being kind of subtle and behind the scenes and spreading my my cards across entities and an important thing to note here is my cap of 100 to 200 while kind of a large position is to me kind of this marker whereby it's easy for me to exit so yeah. the last buy list i did i sent 50 to one vendor and that maxed their quantity if I were to go to market with 100, now I'm going to load TCG player with however many and I have to keep reloading because dumping all 100 for me is a bad move. People are going to fight me on that price and I'm going to go down and down and yep. down. But 100 to 200 is really only one or two buy list orders to maybe two or three vendors that I like to carry credit with. So yeah. that's kind of how I do things. I think well, Wake Root Elemental was a pick I made. Um, a while ago and the board wipe the uh, azurius board wipe from return to rap block was another pick of mine 
I got Perfect. in and out. I got into those immediately because I was able to buy the quantity I wanted to in one shot. I don't have to re-up on those because I, I hit my quantity goal on TCG Player immediately. I just grabbed what I needed because they were basically bulk rare prices. I'll sit on 100, 120 copies of a bulk rare for 12 cents each because that's a position I can get out of essentially at break even at any point. So that's kind of my, my first uh, bullet point into how I handle re-upping on a spec. It does require a lot of vigilance though, because I got to sit around and watch the marketplace, you know? So my thing is when you mentioned retail price, that's a really good one. So when it's a long-term spec for me, um, and I'm going to use Grim Feast as an example for me. So way back in 2000, late 2017, early 2018 was when the cabal started hitting Grim Feast somewhat. Yep. Um, it was all sub 50 cents. So I basically started buying every copy I could that was sub a dollar. And, you know, the nice thing about reserve list, obviously, it's only going to go up forever. But at any rate, whenever copies would get listed and I'd check maybe once or twice a week below a dollar, I'd be like, all right, this is my ceiling yep. for this startup. I'm just going to hoover up everything under that price. And this was something I did over months and months until I got same as you, a capped number of quantities, which is typically about two to three hundred. Uh, same reason when Card Kingdom posts a like bulk buy yeah. for something like Sunbird's Invocation, where it's sub five dollars, they'll want a hundred and something of them. Like the, especially with the casual EDH stuff, they want large quantities. Yes. Yeah. Abu wants large quantities. All these places want them in mass. So you're able to actually just you know get out at one to two buy lists. Um, now, so I set my price point and I go from there. And what I'll typically do is I re-up first on TCG because it's a little bit easier there to re-up for me. Okay. Now, we had a spike in 2018 on Grim Feast where it hit a whopping $2. I didn't bother getting out then. I had my exit point. I wanted $5 plus for each of them. Mm -hmm. So I waited another year before they got to sub a dollar again and did the same thing. Hoover, 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 Hoover. And the thing is this, for me, I really only double up when I'm not doing a pump and dump, when it's a full on actual spec, okay. not like trying to flip pirate stompy foils yeah, for yeah. stupid money, like real cards. Um, and I tend to play a little bit longer game with it, which sometimes you have to do a la Sarkin's Unsealing. Now, the other time for me to double down is, and I will use Sarkin's Unsealing here, um, is reprints for me because you see that price yeah. dip. Yeah, yeah. When the price dips then, that's another time that I'll re-up. And it's, you know, for deep specs, like the deep cuts, like Grim Feast, Sarkin's Unsealing, Sunbird's Invo, I tend to look for market trends like that Whereas with some cards, which I'll get to in my second point, cards like Collected Company, where it involves another factor on how I kind of double down on cards like that. But for these, when I'm just mining the absolute slums of bulk, I set my price point. Anytime it gets below that, I hoover up as much as I can for that price point. Yeah. No, uh, I, I like to, to think I do that, but in reality, I often... Uh 
shy away from like constant re-ups, especially when there's a dip. I mean, we, we call it Sunbird's Invocation a lot because they just reprinted it into Infinity and Beyond, but it was really that kind of quantity thing that kept me from moving in further. I already had what I wanted, what I felt comfortable moving. Uh, it's not the kind of card like Grim Feast that you could list on Facebook and just part out to people. That was, for me, a very biased uh, card. Like I said, otherwise I'd be fighting TCG player all day long to try and, and keep market price where I wanted it to be. Um, but I do have some much longer-running specs, and there are only really uh, probably fewer than a handful of them. And this is uh, my the second point for me, and it's kind of it's unique for the position I want to take on them. And uh, they're kind of passion projects. So it's not really like specking necessarily for the long term. One of them definitely is... Um, the other one uh, is kind of uh, this flagpole position that I've taken on a few cards. And it, it's cards like uh, Crimson Hellkite, which for me is a card that I just love to death. I love the art on this card, and you can only get it in one of two sets. This particular art, uh, Mirage, Black Border, 6th Edition, uh, I believe Poopy White Border. There is an oversized version of the card, but it is very difficult to find, and I don't have any. So what I look to do with Crimson Hellkite and a couple of the other cards is um, I actually essentially am taking a low population penny spec and making it a nickel or a dime spec. You know, we're not shooting for the moon here. And I nibble away uh, at, at the quantity over years. I'm not looking, you know, f and I say years and I don't mean two. I I've been at Crimson Hellkite and some of these others for over a decade. And there are actually some years where I don't buy any because yeah. the vendor price is just too high for what I want to pay or I think it's too high right now and it'll come back down because I've watched it do that. I'm not looking to trigger FOMO so I'm just nibbling and in a given year I think the largest quantity of any of these cards that I bought was probably 20 uh, at once off MKM and um, I have a nice empty envelope from customs about it so I've held off on that. And when it comes to these specs, I kind of think of them similar to pushing up a reserve list spec. So it's very similar to what you're talking about with Grim Feast. My goal is to reduce market quantity and own enough percent of the overall quantity that I can effectively reset the price by reselling my copies in time. So I'm not looking yeah. to, as I mentioned, start FOMO buying. I just want these to kind of disappear slowly over time for a card that doesn't see a lot of... Um, price correction and then all of a sudden people realize they're just gone my goal for these specs is to just like i said raise the floor to a more realistic price we're not trying to rocket it we're just trying to get it out of the bargain bin and i want to exit quietly and i want to exit quietly to buy a list like i mentioned before i <clears throat> i might go open market with some of this stuff like years down the road not 100 percent yet but i'm not sending quantity caps on these because i'm going for a, a market percentage but it's a very react, uh, relaxed timeline. It's basically an infinite timeline. You know, one of the cards I'm looking at, I'll buy all day long between eight and twelve, but I won't buy the internet out at eight and twelve. I'll pick up a certain number of copies to just kind of keep demand floating and the card on buy lists until I'm ready to exit. And there's a very good chance, like I've been price tracking this for a while, that when I exit, if I buy at eight and twelve, like I have been for years, I might only exit at like. 14 each yeah like we're, I'm not looking to take an 8 to 12 dollar card and make it a 40 to 50 dollar card that's not what I'm doing here but I do the number 
small number of specs that I do this for, they all basically uh, follow this rule set. It's the only time I kind of break out of that, you know, qu max quantity, max retail price by, uh, bound that I place on my other specs. That was similar to when uh, Asmo and I went on juxtapose. We basically said we want market percentage here. And I think that especially on those older cards like Crimson Hellkite, yep. Juxtapose, stuff like that where you have a much smaller print run and not to mention just templating wise, it's not an easy reprint. Um, that makes it a lot less likely and, you know, granted, you don't have to worry about it as much now because the card template itself is so different than it was for Mirage, yes. than it was for Seventh, than it was for Six, that there is an element of collectability to those cards inherently yeah. that you don't really have to worry about, which is nice. Um, the other one that I went for that I said I'd touch on with Collected Company that I like is basically, and this this one's a lot more intuiting than it is observing market specs, because again, I'm much more of a art than science kind of guy. Uh, is when you take a look at a card like Collected Company, and I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, we're not getting legions exactly, but we're about to get D&D. D&D yes. &D yep. is going to be a tribe-heavy, creature-heavy set. A card like Collected Company, then, has a little bit more going for it, because, all right, well, we're probably going to get some pretty good, aggressively-costed dudes. Yeah. And that's what Collected Company needs to exist. You also have the added benefit of Collected Company really just being, like, unprintably good, unreprintably good, because that standard was awful and it's still fresh in everybody's memories. I miss you, Coco, for Siege right now. At any rate, it's just understanding what's coming up and what could potentially cause a spike. And I do this less with cards that are a card away from being good and more with cards that I'm just, like, I can park money in this and be fine. Yeah. I can move Cocos. I can move Fetchlands. More on that later. I can move cards like this, and I don't mind picking them up aggressively to sit and hold until they reach a price that I want to get rid of. Yeah. Like, right now, I've got between 20 and 25 Cocos that I got between 10 to $14 each. As soon as it hits 20 again, all right, fine. There's a 25% yeah. margin on each of those. Yep. Great, let's get out. And that's something that is a lot more, again, intuiting. And unfortunately, you do have stuff like Secret Lair that can kind of mess with the reprint equity of these cards. Yep. Um, but we'll have an old man yelling at the sky about that later. At any rate, that's something I look for mm -hmm. is design-wise, what is an evergreen card that just gets better? Better time the longer magic exists mm -hmm. and what's coming up that makes that card spike uh similar to when i picked cryptic you know yep. last week last or week. the week before when i said hey counterspell's good and this card's going to get more exposure because of it yeah it's what's coming up thematically that grants more exposure to these cards when ixalan comes out and they say we've got minotaur pirates you know what looks really good then Minotaur tribal cards that have not seen the light of day literally ever, and now Dijeradu is sitting at some stupid number that it shouldn't be, but it's reserveless, so it is, and people are buying it because casuals. Yep. And it's just paying attention to this release calendar, and that's something that when I see something, I'm like, all right, that's a little mouthwatering. That's when I try to double down on those specs, and okay. I say, okay, you know what? Let's do it. Let's go for it. Yep. And on those, 
when it is more of a design thing, my acquisition method changes a little bit. Oh, okay, okay. I go less for TCG, uh, less for Facebook, and try to trade for it. And if I have a bunch of outstanding credit with a vendor, similar to dumping a bunch of sunbirds, I dump a bunch of grim feasts, yeah. I may scoop them from them. But it's not something that I actively try to park capital in. Mm. You know, like these collected companies, I think I bought maybe four of them for retail tops. And the rest were all trades or pickups at a show that came in and I was like, hey, can I get this for 10% above our buy? And they're like, yeah, sure. Stuff like that, just because for these, I'm less comfortable parking the money because I may be wrong. You know, maybe Collected Company stays at this $15 price point, no matter what comes out of D&D. And I'd rather not park a bunch in it and not be able to get out of it without being able to go to the market. Worst case, if I trade for it, I don't feel bad turning it into credit with a vendor. So that's, that's the big shift for me with cards like that as my acquisition method changes completely for okay. those. It's <clears throat> interesting. Like, a lot of this is actually kind of pertinent to um, the Morrow post today. I was talking with somebody uh, about that. There, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there regarding Mar Modern Horizons 2, and there's a mention in there, I think the, the snippet of text is, for every ooze you control. And we just had secret layer oozes, and so the question was, like, is that stuff going to see additional pressure and in my mind i don't think so because the only like there's necrotic ooze and predator ooze in there everything else just happens to be an ooze it just happens to have that type acidic slime etc and i said i don't expect secret layer rat fink art to really <laughs> be the big card here i would think it's going to be biogenic ooze because biogenic ooze comes in, it makes more oozes. Biogenic ooze makes more oozes every turn when you pay into it. And then I thought about it for another second or two, and I'm like, and we're getting a and d set. We're yep. going to get a, at least one gelatinous cube. To oh, your for sure. point of, like, the D&D &D thing, the, the tribal nature of the set, there's going to be, like, as many callbacks as they can to, like, important and iconic uh, creatures weaponry etc from D&D &D, that there's no way we don't get a couple of these so they just bolster the ranks of the ooze and thinking about biogenic that word is only tied to the new raft said it was used twice once on biogenic ooze once on something else doesn't quite matter so it's kind of unlocked in regards to reprint equity and anytime they want to bolster the ooze tribe they can throw it in a commander deck etc but it definitely is something that could be worthwhile and if you're already in on because of standard and how good it was you know if the the way that you look at um uh cards you know as art not as science and what's coming what's coming down the pipe then biogenic ooze might actually fall into that kind of methodology as well based on the data that we have you know at hand to my knowledge it's the only ooze that makes more oozes you don't have to play any like reflections of Lityara, conspiracy anything the mask with nexus nothing that changes creature types this makes more oozes yeah yeah good mana sync it does the things you want and it's you know interesting because like you said this is this is the difference between reserveless specs and different specs for me yeah is reserveless specs it doesn't matter it, it doesn't need anything else it's reserveless it's gonna go up mm-hmm you're a lot less likely to miss with reserve lists. You may miss your timeline. Yes. But you're not going to miss altogether. 
whereas cards like Biogenic Ooze, and this was one that I'd kind of piddled around with, so it's funny you mention it, because, you know, like you said, D&D has a lot of oozes. So we may get something like that, that all of a sudden Biogenic gets that exposure. And you start to see, all right, we touched on a few episodes ago. What do we look for when we're looking into a spec? Mm -hmm. And some of this ties into that. When I said, all right, so what are some tribes? Rogues are a tribe in D&D. Una's Blackguard hasn't been touched yet. It's a rogue lord. It's, it's similar to that. And that's, you know, when looking at doubling down, it's similar for me for starting the spec as well as when I want to double down, are we about to get more exposure? Mm -hmm. And that's like, to me, the key thing is exposure, exposure, exposure. Do we have eyes on the card? Do we have a reason to care? Yep. Huntmaster is a great card. Huntmaster of the Fells is one of the most efficient cards ever printed. Do I have a reason to care about that card right now? No. Not no. if you're not a modern player. If you're a modern player, then absolutely. It slots into your Jund box, but as a commander player, mm, thematically it's a werewolf because it literally says so. Yeah. Oh, it's it's something worth paying attention to that I try to keep as much of an eye on as possible, just because again that's how I personally approach specking. Yep. So, no, it it's good and it's nice to kind of see that like immediately like a conversation I was having today behind the scenes about you know uh, the spec information and not just trying to guess who the uh, the new legendary creature was going to be actually matters to the podcast today. Uh, yeah. So, uh, with this out of the way, you're ready for specs. Let's do it. All right, you want to go first this week? I'll do it. All right, all right so like I said, uh, I would touch on it later. I can sell fetch lands all day. You know what's great? I hate that I'm saying this because this is contrary to everything I've ever said on this podcast. Reprints for fetch lands. So I am picking, as an example, specifically Verdant Catacombs from Zendikar. Okay. It's funny, after I picked this, MTG Stocks ran the weekly winners, and they talked about how, oh, well, this is getting reprinted in Modern Horizons 2. Uh, you're probably going to see some pressure on this card. Well, you know, it's nice that Verdant Catacombs is going down because we're getting an old border reprint. So timeline on acquisition is about a week before MH2 release, full release, not pre-release. Okay. Pick them up at pre-release all day long. Let me see if I can you, get that date real quick so we have that for yeah. our listeners. Um, if, you, if you can trade an old border fetch for Send Plus, do it. Doesn't matter, they do the same thing. They're on the field for 30 seconds at a time, and then you never see them again, and it doesn't matter. So June 18th. Sorry. There we go. So early June. Actually, one month from today when we record is the release. So pick up the Zendikars while they're down. I'd say you probably have about a month or two for that, uh, just because Modern Horizons 2, which supposedly is an at-will set, we'll see. Uh will be printed and opened into the ground for what supply exists right now. For oh, absolutely, like. yeah. And in doing so, you'll see these cards tank. Well, the nice thing about Fetchlands is you need one in all your EDH decks, you need them in all your Legacy decks, your Modern decks. Whatever decks you have that are in an Eternal format, you need at least one copy of these Fetchlands. Mm -hmm. And I think that your Tarns, your Catacombs are really easy movers because they're the most played. Yeah. I also honestly think Arid Mesa, the lesser played ones, are not a bad get here. 
I think they're great. Your marsh flats and your mesas are they're, also fine. They're easy to pick up, but they're difficult to get rid of, but it doesn't mean you can't. And the longer they sit in your binder, the more they accrue value, so it's not the worst thing in the world. You'll get rid of them eventually. You just have to be okay with sitting on them. Yep. And timeline-wise, I think this is going to be the most interesting thing, and that's because we have now announced in-store magic is back. Yes. Uh, we did also announce, and we'll touch on this later in another episode, Wizards is basically nuking the pro system and saying, eh, see you later, bye. Jog off, yeah. So you're not going to have large events looking the same. So timeline, assuming we just have in-store events, and we're going to start this at June 18th okay. is day zero here. I'd say you're looking at about six to nine months. From then, you're looking at right around holidays or shortly thereafter now that's because i think that things this year will be very different for the holidays yes i don't think we'll see the dip that we have in previous years oh. uh i think that with i mean we saw last year there really wasn't a dip with COVID. uh i think if anything we may see a surge this year because well we're gonna be back in stores we're going to have more demand for people to do these things, and I expect that a lot of things involving social gatherings, like magic, will probably explode in popularity over the next few months. Yes. So I'd be looking at ho late holidays or early spring for when I would get rid of these, like right around tax return okay. time. And I'd anticipate you'll easily be able to get a 20 to 25% return. I mean, when you look at the stocks oh, sure. graph or catacombs, you look at launch, you look at now, it's just a steady upward trajectory. You know, we see a little bit of a dip every time we get a reprint, and it goes right back up to where it was. And right now, you know, we're coming off another, we're starting another valley. Yep. So this is, yet again, granted it's not reserveless, but this is an example of those cards that are almost reserveless light, kind of, because they follow a perpetually upward trajectory. Yeah, yeah. And I don't You're, think that this card there's a world where events are happening and this card isn't 60 to 70 dollars until they decide to put the enemy fetch lands in a standard set you'll never say demand with supplemental printings this card isn't timer go if it's not vendelian click that only goes in a small number of decks you already mentioned it every edh player can run like any number of fetch lands that their wallet can you know put yeah. in the deck and every eternal format player needs some number of fetch lands on and off color to make their deck function optimally there's always going to be demand for these you know watsi having to place them in a standard set isn't you know counterintuitive because they have blanket banned fetch lands in pioneer i believe when the format was released mm -hmm. they didn't ban them by name i think they ban them by type essentially so yeah. it allows them to just like quick ban them again <clears throat> and i uh i have a back stock of zend fetches um, yeah tarns i think because blue red is the new blue black yep and i'm happy with my overstock i will always be happy with my overstock because i bought in exactly like you said in the valley for modern masters 3 it was uh, after release when everybody just ran to DC, TCG player and for like two weeks you could get them for like nothing and I picked up the extras I needed for Dex and for Cube like it, it, yeah. it's amazing and right now it, uh, the price on stocks 
it says the average is $67 for Catacombs. You can buy four on TCG Player right now for uh, 50, 50, 53, 53. You could put a playset together for a little under $210, which is, in the grand scheme, still a decent amount of money, but not nearly as much as the market price, which I would have you believe. People are running to the bottom right now. Yeah. The other thing we don't know, and this is going to affect the Valley, is we do not know the ratios of rares yet across all of the ways you can purchase Modern Horizons 2. Uh, so we don't know what collector booster boxes are going to provide yet in regards to old frame and new frame, and we don't know what the ratios will be for old frame in the set, if it will be greater than zero or not. So that will also affect this. So. You know, if you're the kind of person that wants to move in on Fetchlands for personal use or for specking, you know, ear to the ground on this one, you, yeah. we're waiting for that for that data, and it's going to be huge in regards to the the timeline and expected out for a card like this. I think it's good. Yeah, I, uh, you know, and it's it's good that you mentioned we don't know insertion necessarily because that may make it better or worse, which is one of the reasons I. My day zero is a little bit more delayed. Yeah. I, because I'm not 100% confident in quantity that I'd want to get until I know this is how it's going to look. Yep. Yeah. Like I said, the only way this the prices are really effective is if they come into a standard set. And at that point, you should just buy infinite because they'll be dirt. And then when they're not dirt, they'll be infinite again. So you just yeah. move in there. You know, this is the kind of time where you got to be agile and like dodge and weave and like pick your points but uh, i don't think you could ever really go wrong i think like you said if you go to go wrong it means you bought in too early or too late but at the end of the day all that does is as you mentioned earlier just shift your timeline for getting out and like that's not that's not the worst unless you're like strapped for it or you like super type a your your specs yeah on the other side of things i'm going wicked casual here and i'm going with uh praetor's council a big splashy green rare from i love that card mirrored and besieged dude i love it too i'm i'm kind of bummed it fell out of the format and you can kind of see exactly what i'm talking about where like it hits right before fate reforge like a whole two dollars right comes up from yep. nothing and then it does it drops and then it comes back up and it when it plateaus it still plateaus uh, above three dollars and we're coming back up on it again and this is a card I like because, as I mentioned, it's it's a big dumb card, right? The the effect is really splashy. It's just kind of been outshined right now, so I think now's the time to move, um, move in on it. Um, when I put this on my list back in December to watch, CK was buying twenty two for two dollars twenty five. Uh, when I picked it as a spec, they were buying thirty at two dollars seventy five. Um, Somebody sent them three, but they're still buying high. TCG had 105 LP or better at three dollars three cents. TCG now has a um, for set. TCG now has set for 75 at um, four dollars sixteen, maybe less now as I refresh the page down to 72. So this card is like you look at it and you're like, okay, this brings everything back from your graveyard to the hand. You have no maximum hand size. Awesome, but in reality, like it's a little narrow when you look at where people are playing it, and it's kind of understandable. So. Let me bring up uh, EDH. I can see some of the top generals. So, um, an, again, a number of themes. You have everything from like Vorinclex to Multani over here. 
And basically what, I, what I'm looking at for this card is it's really the initial effect of bringing everything back to your hand, from your graveyard to your hand. The no maximum hand size is kind of gravy and it really plays off of like big mana. And with Kamal Fist of Croja, that's kind of exemplified there. And Joda Archmage is really the only kind of interesting standout because Joda is just Fist of Suns on a creature. You can play any spell you want for Wooberg. Um, so this is basically in big mana, not big draw, which is interesting, but most of the generals and the heart of the theme is based on cards in hand, and this is one of the best rates of putting cards in your hand in green yeah. compared to something like Garuk Primal Hunter or Return of the Wild Speaker, especially in the mid to late game. Uh, I expected this to be in a lot of Voltron-style decks, meaning a lot of aura or equipment-based decks that rely on specific synergies because it offers incredible utility as a mass recursion spell to finish out the game, though it's not loopable like Seasons Past is, so I imagine that's kind of why it doesn't see as much play as I would expect. Uh, moreover, like I just started playing uh, Toski, uh, the Squirrel, and I'm playing uh, an enchantment-heavy version, and I have Ruffalos' Gift, which is basically just reveal green cards from your hand, bring back auras. So something like Praetor's Council is really, like, second tier even for that. Um, within the format, like I said, big mana, big draw, um, which is super weird. Uh, my timeline for this is basically 12 months as supply continues to naturally drain. It's not overly flashy, and when it does get looks, it's never a back-breaking spell. Rather, it's a spell that snowballs the game. It's a crude value based on what you're returning from your graveyard to your hand. So my expectation is that natural demand continues to slowly push this price over the next 12 months, and only when we get to a critically low supply towards the end of this period will we start to see the price rocket up. And I don't... Th I. I'm not using that hyperbolically. I think this is going to go from three to like six. Yeah. And this doesn't really take into account any new synergistic cards from upcoming sets, but as always, if we do get something raucously good with uh, that pairs raucously well with this, that's when we'll see the price increase sooner rather than later. And there have been a few cards that do that, but they don't really pay off that well. And watsi has been pretty shy to reprint cards like Multani, uh, Marrow Sorcerer, and uh, Musumaru, which really just want to play up cards in hand when i put this all together there were 184 unique prices across all three versions on tcg player for nearman or better so that is set that is commander 2014 and that is commander's arsenal so this card does not have a very wide printing and to me critical as mentioned before would probably be about 100 total prices across all non-damaged conditions so i didn't add in mp or hp when i did this count i was just looking at like the more collectible versions of the card so once you start filtering and you start paying attention to all three i think 100 is kind of that point where we'll say okay now this card is just going to take off and i don't expect an influx in supply at any point either from no players releasing quantity back into the market or from a reprint you know um rumor <clears throat> the mtg rumor mill has basically told us that the praetors have moved off of uh mirrodin and we're going to find the praetors around the multiverse which does make cards like this and praetors grasp a little more open to reprint elsewhere but at the same time this game is still built around draft first then edh then constructed and i wouldn't expect to see a lot more spells like this in standard sets unless they really want to do some weird collation between set boosters and draft boosters and we yeah. haven't seen them do that yet but that's been something i've been pushing for since innistrad 
and like this is all part and parcel to say that a lot of the EDH specs that we're making, eh, whatever, reprint equity kind of low on this. I don't expect this to ever really see enough to to change my expectation. I only expect this to get better over time. Yeah, I think the reprint equity conversation is important here because it is, you know, like you said, it's plain specific kind of because it's involves the Praetors. I think that if they, you know, continue to design around draft and EDH first, the fact that EDH does play hand means it's maybe reprintable, but I think, you know, it's really only reprintable in commander sets. Yeah. I don't even think this could see print in a master set necessarily. No, you know, because you're not printing world gorger combo you know you you can print world gorger combo and that's fine because that wins you the game you don't really want something like this in a master set i see you tree of perdition uh because it feels really bad when you open it it's the last card to go in the pack when you're drafting yeah no nobody wants this nobody wants to see a mythic rare go last yeah and i i think that that's key and i think that these praetor cards I think what we'll see is kind of what we saw with Boring Clex. You'll see a new iteration of a similar effect. Yes, yeah. Rather than a straight reprint of the card. Yeah. And then you get into the Wheel of Fortune and Time Twister paradigm where it's like, which version is the best one? Doesn't matter. I, I yeah. think that the reprint equity on this card is incredibly low. Yeah. And I think it's another one of those cards that just gets better the more you play, the more yeah. cards that get printed, the more stuff that has an impact on the game. Yeah, I do want to. I do want to call out the more cards that get printed, and this is the last point I want to make on the spec. I touched on it, and I dug in, and Watsi is very bearish on printing cards that play off of the number of cards in your hand. So when I brought up the commander list, the first two played off. Uh, they they get a power toughness equal to the number of cards in your hand to some degree, and also up in the top five commanders is Bora Borigmos Enraged, and all Bora Borigmos does is throw lands from your hand back at your opponents. There are other ways to do this. So in all the generals that are played, there are only two that actually play off of cards in hand. Watsi does not seems to not want to do that, especially at the legendary level. Another one of those could absolutely push a card like this compared to Seasons Past, compared to Ruffalos' Gift and those other very surgical tools. So, yeah, that was the last call out I wanted to make. Makes sense, though. I approve. Uh, anything else for the week? I think that's it. I think yeah. we're good. All right, so we will be back next week with an all-new episode. And until then, you can find us at MTG Cabalcast on Facebook, on YouTube, on Patreon, on Twitter. The podcast itself is on uh, Stitcher, on Audible, on Google Podcast, on Apple Podcast. And you can find me at Halt Iron Reptar on Twitter. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week.